Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What can we expect to see during the NHL playoffs? We'll take a look at that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 106 of. The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, April 11, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Patrick Reed won his first major in taking home the green jacket at the Masters on Sunday afternoon at Augusta and broke onto the scene in the process. Since the casual golf fans who tuned in because it's the Masters and really because Tiger is back most likely had no idea who he was. Not only did we get to learn more about Patrick Reed, like why he's one of the most hated golfers in the sport, we also were informed of some vital information for our everyday life. His favorite song to listen to before his matches. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Patrick Reed entered the Masters as one of the most hated golfers in the sport. Despite being consistently ranked as one of the top 20 or so golfers in the sport, the hate stems back years, going back to when Reed was kicked off the team while at Georgia for unknown reasons. The whispers said anything from cooking his scores to stealing from a teammate. That strong dislike from teammates continued when he transferred to Augusta State, despite the team winning two national championships. Reed was and is cocky, yells like a sailor on the golf course, and was far from beloved after finding success at two Riders Cups, despite earning the nickname Captain America. And oh yeah, there's also the whole schism between his parents and himself and his wife. Once having Mr. and Mrs. Reed thrown out of an event they attended to watch their son. When Reed finished 15 under and held on to win the Masters on Sunday, his parents were not in attendance. Instead, watching on television, just three miles away from the course. There are certainly many layers to Reed's onion. But what a goldmine for the CBS television crew broadcasting the event. With Tiger Woods well out of the picture on the final day, and the public already knowledgeable of the likes of Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth, and Rory McIlroy, Reed, who held the lead all day, needed to get some spotlight. Rather than mention Nike's declaration for him to wear loud pink instead of a red shirt on the final day to not step on Tiger's toes, 
golf legend Nick Faldo, or my apologies, Sir Nicholas Faldo, one of the analysts of the Masters, noted during the broadcast that Patrick Reed listens to the Imagine Dragons song, Radioactive, to get pumped up before the match. He listens to Imagine Dragons Radioactive, and one of the lines is, I'm waking up, I feel it in my bones. But he can feel it right now. Faldo dropped that tidbit as Reed waited to putt on the 18th hole, needing a par to clinch the victory. Then, once Reed sank that putt, Faldo threw down the exclamation point and an anecdote that will long live on in golf broadcasting lore. Yes, it will. Captain America captures Augusta. Imagine Dragons would say, welcome to the new age, to the new age. A five-year-old song referenced by a 60-year-old after a 27-year-old won his first green jacket? Welcome to the new age, indeed. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to listen to our favorite pump-up song. When we come back, we'll talk to a longtime sports broadcaster about his career in radio and the NHL playoffs. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what is your favorite pump-up song and why? A quick housekeeping note, as longtime listeners to the show might have noticed in the open, The Bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, with new episodes airing every Wednesday, featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest to headline the show. We're also in the process of working on a second show that will air on Mondays, featuring Al from White Plains as co-host and will be more sports talk specific and that should be on the horizon later this month now to this week's guest in zig fracassi he is a host and anchor for sirius xm nfl radio and sirius xm sports in general as well as the host of this week in college hockey zig has been in sports talk radio for three decades and cut his teeth working through the local and national scene to get to the satellite level of today all while continuing to get better at each step along the way. We'll chat about how he got into sports broadcasting and working his way to SiriusXM before hitting on one of his specialties, the National Hockey League. We'll touch on the major storylines from this season, some things to keep an eye out for during the opening round of the Stanley Cup playoffs that kick off this week, and what team has a shot to hoist the cup. You can follow Zig on Twitter. He's at Zig Fracassi. That's Z-I-G-F-R-A-C-A-S-S-I. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Zig Fracassi. He is a host and anchor for Sirius XM NFL Radio and Sirius XM Sports in general, as well as the host of This Week in College Hockey. Zig, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? John, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. And before we get into what you're assuredly very excited to talk about, which is hockey, since the NHL playoffs are upon us, I wanted to get started by turning back the clocks a little bit and ask, when did you know that you wanted to pursue the world of sports broadcasting? Oh, boy, here we go. Uh, this is your life, Zig Fricasse, in 30 seconds. Now, uh, basically, uh, it, it probably started in grade school. Um, 
I'm going to say maybe gosh, seventh, eighth grade, because I had this insatiable appetite for sports. Uh, I got into it uh, at a rather early age as far as watching games on TV. Uh, my brother uh, took me to games uh, in Buffalo where the Sabres and the Bills obviously were in at that time, the Buffalo Braves, who are now better known as the Los Angeles Clippers. So I had a lot of um, you know chances to go to games. And uh, I think it was the fact that I wasn't physically able to play. I, w- I was never going to be a pro athlete. But I always wanted to take a look at things, John, a little more analytically as to, oh, the team sucks. You know, or, oh, boy, they were, bu- they were lucky. The other team sucked. You know, they all hate Buffalo, all that kind of stuff. So I'm figuring, all right, there's got to be a better way than this. So you figure out after a while, you know, what maybe this team was better prepared, better coached. So I started watching the games a little more closely than my friends would, for example. And then, you know, I I would always, um, in grade school, I would uh, do the uh, church readings at my church, and then I went to Catholic school, so I did the readings during school masses, and people would tell me, you know, you have a pretty good voice. So after a while, you start putting two and two together, and that's probably where it got started. Where it really kind of piqued my interest was a couple of my classmates at Niagara Catholic High School uh, revived the um, audio-visual program, the closed-circuit TV that was inside our two schools at that point. And they asked me if I wanted to do sports. And I says, yeah, why not? You know, so I would prepare uh, a cast to obviously, you know, profile with Niagara Catholic football or basketball or track, whatever they were doing at that time. And then I'd mix in the Sabres and Bills, whatever they might be doing. And from that point, it really got me going. And then I wound up going to a two-year school in um, uh, near, near Niagara Falls, got my associate's degree. And then uh, made the move of my life, going out to Las Vegas. Uh, Didn't get into the sports talk radio immediately, but I did do some country music. So uh, that was kind of a uh, a bench warmer, so to speak. Uh, You know, I didn't care much for country music, but the fact that I was working at a professional radio station, and that's one thing I would recommend to people wanting to start out in the business now, be diverse. Be, uh, you know, obviously, you're, you may be locked in on sports broadcasting or whatever, but you got to learn how to produce. You got to learn how to write. You got to learn how to, you know, comport yourself as a professional. So I did that. And then, lucky for me, the early 90s was when the national sports talk uh, phase was starting. And I lucked out, worked for a couple of nationally syndicated networks in Vegas. Uh, wound up moving back towards my western New York uh, around 2001, worked for the Sabres flagship station, uh, which was on FM back then for a few years. And then 2004, ultimately wound up at the Sirius XM in a bunch of different roles. And glad to say 14 years later, I'm still there. So there you go. Around the world with Zig in about a minute and a half there. Excellent. And as we know, just from the business in general, we can't always start at the top of the totem pole when it comes to what a dream job might be or where we see ourselves in 10 years. You usually end up sweeping the floors of the newsroom, so to speak, before you end up with what you might want to do or where you think you might want to end up. What were some of the more important things that you picked up along the way in those early jobs, doing the country music scene before getting into the sports world and before really making it doing something that you wanted to do in a sense? Well, one thing I I, uh, left out was during my time at the uh, two-year community college I went to, I was afforded a chance to be able to do an internship at the local radio station in Niagara Falls, which was 1440 on the AM dial WJJL. And I remember distinctly the first couple of weeks I was there, I was eager enough. And, you know, they basically, this shows you how old this was back in the 80s, they would have me scotch tape the uh, album covers of uh, worn-out production music jackets. And I'm like, all right, wait a minute here. I I didn't come here to do that. And I articulated that to my general manager, God rest his soul, named Bob Rogers, the prince of a man. And I said, Bob, I didn't come here 
to do this. I came here to get more hands-on experience. You know, I, I don't know what more I need to do as far as show my drive and my desire. And I think deep down, he, he kind of smiled, and he's like, that's actually what I wanted to hear. Before you know it, John, I became close with another uh, great mentor of mine, another God rest his soul, but this too soon, Mike Benson. And he took me under his wing as far as putting together sportscast was concerned, you know, how to put together in, in chronology, you know, what, what was important for that day, for that local team, or if it was a national story, if that turned uh, to be the big story of the day. So he gave me that. He let me run the board on the uh, music uh, aspect of the station, which they never let interns touch the board, let alone run it. But they put enough faith in me there. So I think it was initiative that you, you have to show. Uh, I mentioned about the country music station. Uh, I, I did everything. I got paid crap, and I loved every minute of it because I knew I was in it professionally. So they they wanted me to learn how to do production. They wanted me to learn how to write public service announcements. Uh, we were automated in the overnight hours, so I programmed the computer system that uh, fired the brakes when they sent the signal from satellite at the bottom of each hour because you had to have a brake uh, programmed in. And then uh, before you know it, uh, my boss, another great friend of mine, Jack Daniels, and yes, that's his real name, Jack Daniels, uh, he basically, you know, saw the initiative I had and the insatiable uh, drive I had for sports. They wound up bringing in a lot of play-by-play. At the time, they were the California Angels, uh, Los Angeles Rams the first time around, BYU football. We were the first team west of the Mississippi to air the Boston Celtics. This was at the tail end of the Bird Parish McHale era, and I would run the board for those games. And then Jack would say, you know what, after the game, why don't you do like a half-hour scoreboard show? And this is like for me, like having the keys keys to the car for the first time. He's like, don't embarrass us. Just do a good job. Be focused. Enjoy yourself. So I think from that, it's perseverance, uh, the willingness to do whatever it is to succeed because nothing's too big, nothing's too small. So that would be... Uh, another lesson I would learn to impart on people is nothing's too big, nothing's too small. You, you, you have to approach this. John, I'm, I've been doing the sports talk radio for over 25 years. I've been in this business for about 30. I still approach it like somebody's going to take my job. And it, it's kind of in a way to equate this towards Tom Brady and, and the football. And here's a guy who has everything you could ever want. The hottest wife you could imagine, great kids, millions in the bank, five Super Bowls, arguably or probably the best quarterback of all time. He still plays like that sixth-round pick back in 2000 that somebody might take his job. That's how I try to approach what I do is have that hunger. Yeah, other other people may have more prominent gigs and have more, you know, entitlement and all this kind of thing. But if you truly love what you do and you have that passion, everything's going to work out. So I would say, and I always tell the young people too, stay humble, stay hungry, and you'll do all right. You mentioned the longevity portion of your life and career going from local to national to satellite, having to improve your voice over that time period and maybe change a thing or two along the way. Is there something that you've had to overcome or something that you've had to keep up of in a sense from when you first started to how the industry is now and some of the things you're doing now in 2018? I, you know what? That's a good question. I, I would say I haven't really had to change much of anything because, you know, it's one of those things, John, where, um, I, I, I try to stay consistent. You know, I think that's another thing that's part of this business. There's people that tend to get a little bit on the big-headed side or think they're better than actually what they are. I've tried to stay level, so I think that's probably what it is. I'm never, ever going to be anything that I'm not. I've seen some people, 
You know, they, they were hot at one point. They had the hot takes. They had the hot this, the hot that. And then before the end of time, you know, whatever style it is, the in-your-face, I got to get the hot takes out there, that, that's kind of what I think's polluted the business, actually. And I had a, a former colleague of mine pay me a very nice compliment, and I'm forever grateful to it. He said, Zig, you still do sports talk radio the way it should be done. And this is, again, from an accomplished professional who I respect a lot and I consider a friend. And what that is is it's you and maybe a couple of your buddies hanging out. And I'm there with you in a way. We're talking about, you know, why Stanton can't hit the curveball you know, they're riding them out of New York already, even though it's April, for goodness sake. And then I'm going to say, you know what? Maybe let's give this a little bit of time here. Maybe he's learning a new league. Maybe he's trying to adjust and hit every pitch, you know, 25 miles when he should just try to make contact with the ball. We're chatting. I'm not going to talk down to you. I hope you never talk down to me. And if we have a disagreement, we do it civilly and not you scream at me or me tell you you're a moron because I don't operate like that. So I think the hallmark to it, John, is staying consistent, staying who you are, because in the end, people pick out a fraud 10 miles away. You've referenced what you do as far as the update side of things as the Bobby Orr of sports updates. Why Bobby Orr of the sports updates? <laughs> You know, I, I think my better half might have actually put that in there. That, <laughs> I, I, I can't take credit for that. Um, well, Bobby Orr is my all-time favorite athlete. Of course, he was the uh, brilliant defenseman of the Boston Bruins back in the late 60s, early 70s. And here's a guy, John, who had to retire at age 29 because this was pre-modern you know, modern medicine time where he had trouble with his knee, and at that period of time, he had to undergo all these big-time surgeries where, say, if it's 2017, 2018, it might be an arthroscopic procedure. He might be out a month or two months or whatever, and he could have played. Bobby Orr was, to me, the revolutionary hockey player of all time because he, <clears throat> excuse me, he was the guy who scored like a forward, but he played defense. And nobody at that time had you know, been able to play the way he did. He played the game hard. He fought. He also played on a team that was at the dormant. The Bruins were, they were as bad as you got when he got there. I wound up winning a couple of Stanley Cups with him. And the thing about it is, again, his career was so short but he just revolutionized the game in such a short period of time. He essentially had six really good years. And more importantly, this guy does so, did so much, and still to this day does so much off the ice as far as charity work. Uh, Derek Sanderson, great teammate of his, uh, was a playboy back in the day uh, and unfortunately got into some serious drug and alcohol addictions. Bobby Orr paid for his treatments multiple times and never said a word about it. There was a former trainer who had some issues with his life. Bobby took him in and kept him basically going until, unfortunately, the gentleman passed away. He does so much that's, you know, not publicized. And he doesn't want it that way because these are the type of people that you gravitate to are the superstars that they act like regular people. And to this day, this guy not only exemplified how you played the game, but also how to act as a superstar, like he wasn't bigger or better than anybody else. And that's a guy that I've emulated. In fact, I've got him on my, uh, my Twitter, uh, the avatar there, because it was recently John, his 70th birthday. The guy still looks like he's about 40 years old. So we need to all age like Bobby Orr. That's right. I, I wish we could because... There's 
probably an incredible chance that if he put on some skates and went out there, he could still take half the hockey players that would go out there with him and, and show them a thing or two. So that would be nice to continue to look like him. The same for Gary Player, who was just recently on TV a lot, obviously, for the Masters. He's aged like a fine wine as well. So I don't know what was in the water with maybe the sports that they played or what they did <laughs> growing up, but we have to find out what that is. You also have on Twitter that you're the UB exclamation point. Can you explain to the listeners what that is? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not the University of Buffalo, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, now, it, it's sometimes, John, um, in life, maybe you don't get the – sometimes you want to be told that you're pretty darn good at what you do or whatever. UB stands for underrated brilliance. And, again, I don't want this to sound self-serving at all because – I, again, like I spoke of earlier, I stay, try to stay motivated, humble, and hungry myself, like I tell the young people to do. But there, there, there's people in our in the business that probably have bigger paychecks, bigger takes, bigger this, bigger that, and you know they get all the bluster and all the attention. I guess that's fine, but I'll put my record against anybody's when it comes to longevity professionalism, the way I comport myself. And I'm not the best. I'm not the greatest or anything like that. But I would put my record against anybody else's in terms of that criteria I just laid out. And at times, you know, maybe I, I've kind of flown under the national radar a little bit. So I just use that as a sort of motivation. And, you know, sometimes if it rubs people the wrong way, hey, it shouldn't because I'm driven and I do feel at times being underrated. And, you know, at times, I guess I do a brilliant job. I, I guess the old saying is uh, Lombardi once used this, Vince Lombardi used this in one of his uh, meetings was, we will relentlessly pursue perfection, knowing we'll never achieve it because nothing is perfect except God. But along the way, we can sustain excellence and capture excellence. So I kind of use that as the mantra, too. But UB stands for underrated brilliance. Long answer to your question. Right. I like that. We could even go as far to use that with some athletes. And, hey, we could say that that's the case for this show. Underrated brilliance. I'm sure that everyone that loyally listens will appreciate that. I did read on one of the many bios that you have for the shows that I should bring up anything about the history of the NFL or something, quote, Dallas Cowboys related to get you going. But instead of doing that, I will save that for the callers themselves. I guess a little poke in the side for them to know that that's something they can do and instead switch gears to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And it's funny that you just tweeted this out that you always get a kick of the outlets that don't normally pay attention to hockey and then now try to pay attention that the Stanley Cup playoffs are here. That's why you're on the show, Zig, really, for me, because I need your assistance in knowing some stuff that's coming when it involves the Stanley Cup playoffs. Because Absolutely, man. I was just at the Frozen Four, too, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, three outstanding games, Minnesota-Duluth, who won their first national championship seven years ago at XL Energy Center. Fast forward seven years, this Saturday night, they beat Notre Dame 2-1. to one. So their second national championship at the same venue they won their first one. I think that's a pretty cool story. Excellent. And there's going to continue to be those stories. What I always find interesting about the Stanley Cup playoffs is you could almost – erase the regular season in a sense when it comes to whatever the seedings might be or how a team fared against a certain team during the regular season. All that can almost go out the window once the Stanley Cup playoffs come around. And I think that's unique to the sport, to say the least, because we know, especially the say in the NBA, when a one plays an eight, you can pretty much just pencil in the chalk. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the regular season itself. Was there a storyline that stuck out to you as the biggest from this season? Oh, you know what, John? Here, here's one. There, there's. They always use the saying, um, "Others." There was this story, and others receiving votes. Clearly, 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 I can't capitalize that enough. Clearly, the story of the year was the Vegas Golden Knights, and everything else runs a distant second and third. 
that's how overwhelming that this story was for this season. I mean, let's face it. Here is a t- here is a city that's never used to having a pro team. Although the posse was a CFL team in the early 90s, and that didn't succeed. Nobody in their million years thought that Vegas would ever get pro sports. Oscar Goodman, in 1999, was the mayor at that time, very prominent mob attorney, uh, went to New York, talked with Gary Bettman. And first of all, I knew Oscar. I like him a lot. We've interacted a few times. And I said, you know what? One day... They're going to get a team in Vegas. And people laughed at me. Like, Zig, nobody cares about hockey in Vegas. Well, I got news for you. There was a team in the International League in the 90s, the Vegas, uh, Las Vegas Thunder. They actually drew like six, 7,000 fans a night and had the likes of Alexi Yashin, Clint Malarchuk, and other people that had played in the NHL. Fast forward now, obviously. There's cynicism because how's this team going to survive? And if anything... Your, your attendance will probably be a fans for the other team, and especially for the transplants. Like when Boston goes in there or the Rangers or Chicago, you figure all the transplanted Boston or Chicago or New York people are going to show up. Well, it was clear to see that their GM, George McPhee, and the head coach, Gerard Gallant, put together a wonderful team. The NHL did this franchise a big favor by, you know, letting these guys ultimately go with the salary cap. So, in effect, a team like Pittsburgh couldn't keep a Marc-Andre Fleury. Hence, he becomes available for the draft and goes to Vegas. James Neal, 10-time, 20-goal scorer, accomplished scorer. He winds up being unprotected. And I'm just looking at this. I'm like, you know what? They're putting together a pretty decent team for an expansion, maybe the best one yet. First, I went, I went out on a limb and says, yeah, they'll score 65 points this year but be competitive in every game. Dude, they went over 100 points. They won their division. They became the talk of hockey. They have badass uniforms. The T-Mobile Arena is packed every night. And I knew they had something special early in the year because we go back to early October when – that horrific shooting took place there in Vegas at that concert on that Sunday night. And I'll never forget coming home from my NFL postgame show, just hearing about this and staying up to the wee hours because I still have family and friends that live out there. Then the community was in mourning. That opening home game against Arizona was nationally televised. And you could just tell that the, the, the Golden Knights became more than just a hockey team. They became part of the community. Vegas and that team rallied with each other, unlike anything I think I have ever seen, because Vegas is, again, it's a bunch of transplants moving in from elsewhere to better their lives or to get out of the cold. So the fact that they did as well as they did, again, that is a story for the ages. You may not ever see another expansion team do that well again. And like I said, it's that story and others receiving votes. There's nothing even close to that. I don't think that this will start a trend. And as you mentioned, it would be incredibly difficult for an expansion team to repeat the early success that the Knights were able to have. But do you foresee any city maybe doing this in the next five to ten years and getting a team? Uh, Book Seattle, my friend. That's coming. Uh, they had they sold what was it I think over fifteen thousand season or partial ticket plans when the first day was made available. Uh, Seattle will have a, a NHL team probably within two years, and I think that's when that key center where the Sonics used to play that's going to be all refurbished and all that. So book that that Seattle's going to get a team that would make thirty two teams, John. And then ultimately, if they do it the way that I suggest, you play. You have eight 14 divisions, East and Western conferences, and you have each team have a division winner, and then you pick the four teams with the next best records to comprise the playoffs. It's, it's a pretty simple system, and for those that don't realize it, 
way back around 1910, 1912, somewhere in there, there was an NHL team or an NH. Yeah, it would have been the NHL at that time, but it would have been their infancy, the Seattle Metropolitans. So the NHL is not totally foreign to the city of Seattle. It's just only been about 100 years or so. Yeah, dust off those throwback bowler caps and get ready to go when <laughs> Seattle gets its hockey team once again. I alluded to this a little bit about the NHL playoffs in general, and what always interests me every year is that a guy like me and countless other people that don't watch hockey every night and follow it as strongly as the diehard hockey fans do can sit in front of the TV for the playoffs and have an anxiety butterfly pit in their stomach for any (laughs) game that they watch, especially the Stanley Cup, and especially depending on the circumstances of each individual game. And that's different from if you just took somebody to watch a baseball game in the playoffs that doesn't necessarily follow baseball, there's not that same feeling, especially when a game gets out of hand early. Why do you think think that is so special when it comes to the NHL playoffs in that we get that feeling of nervousness, of anxiety, of excitement, just much more, it seems, than any other sport? Well, I, I think, in ter- I mean, let me try to answer it this way. I think it's because, especially the first round, there's this year, you can make, you can make a legitimate argument that the wild card team of either conference could beat the top seed. You could definitely make that argument. Then what happens is the people realize, hey, especially the novice viewers, hey, the speed of this game is just off the charts. The hitting that they do is off the charts. People actually have they adapt to it. And I think as opposed to football, you've got way too many stoppages of play. Baseball is way too cerebral, and basketball, you know, it has its moments when the flow of the game's going. But when it comes to Stanley Cup playoffs, especially, John, when games go into overtime, that's when it really hits that fever pitch. And then you're watching a game that's so good, it'll go to a set. You're hoping for a second overtime, a third overtime. You might need Red Bulls to stay awake or coffee, and then you sacrifice the sleep for the next day. Like I always say, this is the time of the year my sleep suffers, but I gladly do it because it's the best thing going. So I think that's what it is. There's that element that any game can go to double or triple overtime, and you hope it goes all night. Whereas opposed to a Yankees-Red Sox game in April, a a four-hour, nine-inning game, please. Don't don't even bother me with that. So I think that's the part of it, too. And I, I think it, it'll never be a TV bonanza in the States because the game wasn't born here, and most of the players are not American. They're primarily Canadian. You've got a fair mix of Americans. You've got more U.S. collegiate uh, players coming out than ever before. Plus, of course, you got players from Russia and Finland and Sweden and all that. So it's not truly America's game. But, again, the speed of the game, the suddenness of how a game can end, and I think more than ever we've got parity than than ever before. That's what makes the Stanley Cup playoffs very, very special. As you mentioned on Twitter that the Stanley Cup opening round can go either way and a couple series to look out for, quote, the extra jam to them. We have Toronto and Boston, the Flyers against the Penguins and the L.A. Kings against those Las Vegas Knights. Is there a series that you might see go in the way of an upset in the opening round or some things we can expect to see in the early going here? Well, you just love reading my Twitter account, don't you? I, I, I forgot I tweeted most of these. I have to so, research uh, just a little bit, Zig, and, and keep uh, up and with I you like while we're going that. along. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's that's why you know I like it because you do that, you do your homework. Um, and, and those series I laid out because briefly, Boston, Toronto, two storied franchises, two the so-called original six, where. Basically, it's a misnomer. It should be the surviving six. Basically, between 1943 and 1967, there were only six teams in the NHL. 
So the marketing geniuses always call it the original six, where I would call it more of the sustaining six. Boston and Toronto were two of those teams, and again, that always makes for good theater. Vegas and L.A., because for years, the Kings were kind of the team in Vegas. They would play exhibition games against the Avalanche. I went to quite a few of them at the MGM Grand. And then Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, obviously, because of the Pennsylvania factor. Um, upsets, like I said, I think any of these could go either way. Um, if I'm looking here real quick, I would probably – I think New Jersey is going to give Tampa a lot of, uh, a lot of grief. And they won, you know, we, we talked about it earlier, throw the records out, but New Jersey did sweep the season series against the Lightning. They're a team that plays on the edge. They play fast. Uh, they're no Cinderella. Uh, they, they built this team nicely. Tampa kind of struggled down the stretch. They've had some injury issues. And I said before the playoffs, people were asking me, what team do you, would you watch for to maybe – open some eyes, that would be my team, the New Jersey Devils. I, I like what Ray Shiro, the GM, has done as far as replenishing the roster. John Hines is a good teacher. And Taylor Hall, who was the former number one overall pick in 2010 by the Edmonton Oilers, uh, had an okay career there. He gets traded to New Jersey, put up career numbers this year, John. My choice for the MVP I think they're riding a wave. I think New Jersey's got a real good chance to knock off the top seed Tampa Bay. Well, I would be remiss as a sports show if I didn't get you out of here with a prediction for the Stanley Cup to predict the whole thing, as many sports shows will with their guests. Some main storylines that I can come up with off the top of my head, which means I'm sure diehard hockey fans probably aren't thinking about because they're that obvious, is the Penguins, of course, going for a three-peat. Can the Capitals finally get things done and not disappoint? Can the Knights be the Cinderella? The list goes on with just the typical how we think things are going to go. But as someone that is a diehard fan, is there a team that you're leaning toward, whether that is to make the Stanley Cup or to host the trophy at the end? Well, I'm biased because I'm a Bruins guy. have been uh, since the Bobby Orr days. I will say this. I'm not totally sure they can do it. But I, I have a feeling whoever comes out of that series with Toronto could go very far. I'll qualify that. And then I'm real curious out west if Nashville can get back to the Stanley Cup final. I think they snuck up on some people last year. This year, another great year, President's Trophy. But more is expected. They can't sneak up on people anymore. I'll be real curious to see who comes out of uh, Anaheim and San Jose because the Ducks have enough playoff experience. They play a heavy game. They play a playoff-type game. Keep your eye out on Anaheim out west. Zig, thank you for the education when it comes to hockey and what's going on in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Some of the different things we can hope to see, and of course, just talking in general about what you've done throughout your sports broadcasting career. Just for the listeners, this is Tuesday night, so I do have to say to get some rest, get some sleep, and I'm sure you don't need <laughs> me saying that you can get geared up for these games, because I know they're going to be exciting for hockey fans and non-hockey fans. Always a great time of the year and it was great getting to talk to you about it john thanks for having me man i enjoyed it thanks again to zig for coming on the show we'll close out the show with another installment of five minutes in the film room with joe Burris. joe and i have been teammates on the basketball court sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious john and joe sports show once found on 99.5 wusr scranton and the royal television network Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down the HBO film Paterno which Rotten Tomatoes describes as starring Al Pacino in the title role. The drama centers on Penn State's Joe Paterno in the aftermath of the Jerry Sandusky sexual abuse scandal. 
After becoming the winningest coach in college football history, Paterno's legacy is challenged, and he is forced to face questions of institutional failure in regard to the victims. You can find Joe on Twitter at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Joe Paterno has plenty of material to make a series of films, but there's only one topic that matters, and that centers on Jerry Sandusky. How much did he know? Did he do enough to stop it? Should he be revered or shamed? HBO's Paterno covers two weeks in the legendary Penn State coach's life in which he experienced the highest of highs, winning his 409th career game to become the winningest coach in college football history, and the lowest of lows as he was dishonorably fired after the Sandusky scandal broke. The topic is interesting enough that I would have sought out this movie regardless, but throw in Al Pacino as Paterno and my local connection to the team, I watched this the night it was released. The Times Tribune in Scranton, PA, which I work for now, has a beat reporter for Penn State who gives substantial coverage of the football team. Also, I went to grade school with and played on the same basketball team as Matt McGloin, who was in the midst of a quarterback controversy during the time period this movie covers. I'll touch on all of this in the film room. Let's go to the tape. There are two actors at the core of this movie, Pacino and Riley Keough. Pacino does a nice job as Paterno. I like that he doesn't try to imitate how Paterno talked, because sometimes actors go for that and it takes away from the movie. If the case was he couldn't do the voice so it was scrapped, or the director Barry Levinson didn't plan on doing it at all, I thought it was a good move. Keo portrays Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who first broke the story about Sandusky months before the scandal went into the national spotlight. I like her performance. It's very subdued, although you can see her emotions trying to break out. She obviously has a passion for the story and wants the kids who suffered to have some sort of justice. What I enjoyed most was watching her handle the national spotlight when the scandal broke. All of a sudden, CNN is throwing a camera in her face and asking her to talk about what she knows, and a NBC reporter is following her and begging her for sources. It's funny watching Keo portray discomfort in that situation, wearing the wrong clothes, stuttering on camera, trying to have a TV voice. She serves as our vehicle into the story, the person who we can relate to. Although the movie is a dramatization, it is mostly faithful to the real-life events, based on what I remember and what I've read from a number of outlets. Paterno also does a nice job not telling the audience how to feel about what happened. It just gives you the information and allows you to decide. I have an opinion about the whole matter, but I won't share it here. That's for you to decide. It also hits you with the question, why is Paterno even the story? Why isn't all the focus being put on these kids in this investigation? I thought that was another interesting way to look at it. I enjoy what the movie does with lighting and how it's shot. There are flashbacks that are shot with a bright yellow light, which the characters are not usually in, and the picture is a bit fuzzy and grainy. It's to show you that times are good for Jopa and Penn State, but the handling of Sandusky in the shadows leaves a darkness and a murkiness to their successes. The present is shot mostly in cloudy, dreary weather. Again, characters in the shade, in poor lighting. But the picture is clear, showing that darkness is coming to the forefront as the facts are coming into the public eye. It's no longer a secret. It's out there, and it's clear. The movie also accomplishes a level of discomfort. I felt uneasy watching it. The score, or more so just noises at times, really get to you. The paternal family conversations become uncomfortable as they are simultaneously defending Jopa and questioning how much he knew. The dream sequences in the movie did not happen in real life, obviously. Levinson took some creative liberties, and I don't have a problem with that. My issues are simple. Even though the movie only covers a two-week time period, there's just too much to cover. I would love to see a movie strictly on the reporting aspect, similar to Spotlight. Second, Ganim wears a Penn State hat while covering a Penn State game on the sideline while openly rooting for Penn State. That's not how reporting works, even though she did go to the school. I'm sure Ganim will tell you the same thing. I highly doubt she did that, so the fact that she was portrayed like that was a little ridiculous to me. I'll tell you what I'm told all the time. No cheering in the press box. The opening also bothers me. 
While I was interested to relive the McGloin versus Rob Bolden quarterback controversy, I think the movie needed to touch a little more on the glory days of Joe Pa and Penn State. When he won his 409th game, which is the game covered, he was far past his prime. It oddly throws a plot point in that his son, Jay Paterno, isn't respected because a player screams up to the booth at him through a headset that McGloin should be playing instead of Bolden, using much more colorful language than I just did. I know the movie is trying to show Paterno at the height of his career, and that was the crowning achievement, but he was coaching from the booth because he was injured and frankly very old. People at the time were even questioning if he was really the head coach. It would have been more effective to show him on the sidelines, younger, being carried off the field after winning a national championship, or just a short montage. It just felt out of place. One thing's for sure. McGloin definitely should have been starting instead of Bolden. That opinion I will share. And it's not just because I know him. It's a fact. Do you see how those few sentences just derailed this review? Hence my point. The bottom line, Paterno is a solid film that works as a companion piece to the story. It paints a relatively accurate picture of what happened, including the Penn State campus riot after Paterno was fired. It's well shot, it has some good acting, it doesn't shove down your throat any particular way of thinking, it just shows you the events and allows you to make a decision. Despite its positives, Paterno is uncomfortable to watch. It's not a movie you just throw on for fun. Those with interest in the topic, give it a watch. But I don't think it's good enough to pull in any other audiences. I'll compare Paterno to Gordon Hayward's leg injury. While disturbing to watch and just plain sad, if you're a fan of the sport, you've still got to watch it. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn and can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.